Ask Coffee Listeners Ahoy! Episode 31 addresses the return of Shackleton, but before I pick up where episode 28 left him, greeting Scott's return from the position of Secretary of the Royal Scottish Geographic Society, I'm going to delve into his past, where I think some insights into his temperament lie. Ernest Shackleton was born the second of ten children to a Yorkshire family living in Kildare, Ireland. Finding it difficult to keep such a large family on the proceeds of his efforts in farming, Henry Shackleton moved the clan to Dublin and studied medicine at Trinity College. On completing his studies, he moved the family again, setting up a practice in South London. Sent to school at Dulwich College, Ernest Shackleton's Irish accent saw him singled out for taunting, and his headstrong character saw him rise to those taunts, earning him the nickname The Fighting Shackleton. Ernest determined to leave Dulwich College at 16 to go to sea, ignoring his father's attempts to draw him into a medical career. A Royal Navy cadetship, usually paid for by the family of the cadet, lay outside what the Shackletons could afford, but a family connection helped secure a berth on a merchant square rigger of the Northwestern Shipping Company, the Hofton Tower, out of Liverpool, and Ernest Shackleton made the first of many voyages around Cape Horn, bound for Chile. Pleased with his new life, he signed on for four years, these being spent in voyages to and from South America. He studied in his spare time, and at the age of 20 sat and passed his second mate's exams, moving on from the Hofton Tower taking up as third officer on the tramp steamer Monmouthshire. In 1896, he sat and passed his first mate's exams, and after another two years, qualified as a master mariner, moving on to the Union Castle line and sailing the mail service between Southampton and Cape Town. It was in this service, in March 1900, while aboard the Tintagel Castle, then serving as a troop ship carrying British forces to the Boer War, that Shackleton met Lieutenant Cedric Longstaff, the son of Llewellyn Longstaff, who helped gain him his berth aboard the Discovery. And that's where we first encountered this merchant officer, carried south with Scott and Co. Ernest Shackleton was kept very busy on his return from Antarctica. Fated by the press as a national hero, he was called on to meet with and speak to large numbers of important people and audiences. Most pressingly, the Navy, acting on Sir Clements Markham's advice, called on his newfound polar expertise to assist in fitting out the Terra Nova and advising the crew on how best to face the challenges ahead of them in the South as they sailed in company with the morning to McMurdo Sound and Scott's humiliation. Shackleton was offered the role of Chief Officer aboard the Terra Nova, but declined. Some authors read this as a sign of resentment towards Scott, but I don't buy that. To sail aboard the ship sent south by Markham's and Scott's detractors would have served such animus well, but I rather think the decision stands as an early indicator that Shackleton was thinking about leading his own expedition long before he made any public announcement on the matter. Shackleton's expertise also served in the fitting out and provisioning of the Uruguay as it prepared to sail south under Lieutenant Irizar to search for Nordenskjold and the crew of the Antarctic. Shackleton attempted to join the Royal Navy by the supplementary list, a backdoor allowing the recognition of experience or service outside the normal naval training programs. In spite of Markham's advocacy, the desired commission did not arise. 
Shackleton tried his hand at journalism for the Royal Magazine, but found the work not to his taste. In early 1904, he chucked this job to take up the role of secretary at the Royal Scottish Geographic Society, which he held when Scott returned to England aboard the Discovery. In April that year, he married Emily Dorman. Domestic life never sat well with Shackleton, and rumours of affairs are easy to find, but Shackleton did express regret and disappointment in himself that he never lived up to his own ideal image of a good husband. Emily and Ernest had three children together and remained married until his death. In 1905, Scott's publication of The Voyage of the Discovery made mention of Shackleton's infirmity on the southern journey, and many biographers cite this painful disclosure as a key element in spurring Shackleton to action. In 1905, he began attempts to gather funds for an expedition south, but didn't find much traction. Shackleton stood as the Liberal Unionist Party candidate for Dundee in the 1906 general election on an anti-Irish home rule platform, but his campaign proved unsuccessful. He began working as a roving agent for William Beardmore, an engineer with interests in shipbuilding and armaments, building on a fortune established in steel mills by his father. Working to find new contracts for the engineering works, Shackleton impressed Beardmore sufficient that when Antarctic proposals once more came to the fore, Beardmore put forward a loan of £7,000. Shackleton, aware the Belgian Henrik Arktowski was setting his sights on Ross Island for his own expedition, announced his polar plans at a Royal Geographic Society meeting on the 11th of February 1907, gazumping Arktowski in attendance to announce his own plans. Shackleton approached the Royal Geographic Society for support, but with the Society already primed to back Scott's developing but not yet public plans for a return voyage, failed to find much encouragement. Scott, himself at sea in the Mediterranean at the time, reacted with surprise and alarm to Shackleton's announcement. With his own plans kept secret, but for a few close confidants in the RGS, Scott wasn't in a strong position to make claims on anyone regarding their respecting his perceived privileges in McMurdo Sound, but his dedication to the mores of the 19th century prevented him from seeing the situation from any perspective than his own. He felt he had a right to treat McMurdo Sound and Ross Island, if not the entire Ross Sea, as his sandpit. He would rather everyone stayed away entirely, but if Shackleton would go south, he expected him to keep a gentleman's distance away from the territory Scott felt was his by right of... um... That's where the words run out. Conquest would suggest that the Antarctic was tamed. Ownership would put Scott at odds with his government and every other government that currently did or perceivably might hold designs over the South. Vague imprecations of doing right and being gentlemanly were the best Scott could come up with, as evidenced in his correspondence to Shackleton. I needn't tell you that I don't wish to haunt you and your plans, but in one way, I feel I have a sort of right to my own field of work in the same way as Peary claimed Smith's Sound and many African travellers their particular locality. P.S. I feel sure with a little discussion we can work in accord rather than in opposition. A follow-up missive on the same day concluded, Well, goodbye for the present. The subject is very close to my heart, so please write openly and freely. It's at this point, and on that poignant note, 
that I feel most sympathetic to Scott on the matter of his perceived right to the arena. It's in part that he was so deeply entrenched in ideas of chivalry and honour that he reads as a character lifted out of a Walter Scott novel that Sir Clements Markham took him under his wing. But that cast didn't fully fit with the late modern period that his life traversed. Shackleton appears a far better fit for the 20th century, alert to the value of branding and image in a way that Scott was only dimly aware, and similarly alert to the pressures of international competition, such as that posed by Arktowski, competition which already didn't care a whit for gentlemen's agreements between British officers. I understand both sides of the tussle, but while I feel sympathy for Scott's position, I know that I would struggle to agree to the strictures Scott negotiated. Both men turned to their close mutual friend, Edward Wilson. Shackleton sought him out as chief scientist for his expedition. Scott sought him out as arbitrator. Wilson, engaged in research into a disease affecting Scottish grouse, politely declined Shackleton's invitation south and took up Scott's cause in attempting to dissuade Shackleton from using Ross Island as a base of operation. I've had to liaise between strong-willed and righteous, angry colleagues, and besides being extremely uncomfortable in the moment, I found the experience coloured the attendant friendships by means of tensions and compressions that wouldn't otherwise interfere in our social interactions. To play intermediary to such powerfully determined men as Scott and Shackleton must have been hellish on the gentleman ornithologist. Shackleton agreed that he would work toward King Edward VII land, leaving Ross Island and the established path south across the barrier to Scott. The urgency imparted by Arktowski's plans prompted Shackleton to seek a departure during the northern summer of 1907, so he only had six months, at most, to gather his resources and develop an effective team. He decided to use a single ship to deploy and retrieve a shore party, the ship itself wintering further north. The advantage of that approach is that it saves money on ships, crews and victuals. The downside is that those on shore are left uncertain about the state of the ship and if no one shows up to collect them, they can't do much about it. But Shackleton had little choice in the matter, given the time constraints he faced and the state of the expedition finances. In April 1907, confident of the backing of Scottish investor Donald Stewart, Shackleton travelled to Norway, eager to purchase the 700-tonne polar vessel Bjorn. Stewart pulled his support. The vessel, lying well out of Shackleton's reach, eventually sold to Wilhelm Filchner, who renamed the ship Deutschland and sailed it south on his own expedition several years later. Determined to make something happen, Shackleton purchased the Nimrod, a clapped-out 334-ton sealer working in Newfoundland. On the ship's arrival in London, Shackleton thought he'd done his £5,000. Requiring new masts, recorking and stinking of seals, the refit required substantial further funds. Also soaking up money, Shackleton purchased the requisite Finesco, Thermits and Sledges while in Norway. Discussions with Fritjof Nansen saw Shackleton ignore some very sound advice. While in the south, aboard the Discovery, Albert Armitage regularly regaled the wardroom with his enthusiasm for the use of ponies as beasts of burden in polar regions. While second in command of the Jackson-Harmsworth expedition in Franz Josef Land, Armitage witnessed their use 
but the record that comes down to us from that experience is less than a stellar recommendation. Of the three ponies employed, two died very early in the expedition. The remaining pony was pushed to its own death before the need for its traction was over. Shackleton recognised the inherent disadvantages of equine transport in ice work. All of their food must be carried in with them, there being no native plants for them, where dogs will eat seals and penguins until forcibly restrained. Ponies haul less per kilogram of animal than dogs. And ponies don't eat dead horse, where dogs will eat dead dog all day and twice on Sundays given the chance. Shackleton initially planned an all-dog approach to his transport needs, but lacked the training to really work dogs to their full potential. A meeting with Frederick George Jackson in England rekindled the embers of pony enthusiasm stoked by Armitage, and figuring the animals the easier option in terms of handling, Shackleton ordered 15 long-haired Manchurian ponies through the London branch of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. Nansen advised Shackleton rethink the use of dogs, but with time against him and first-hand knowledge of how troublesome dogs could be, without experienced handlers to hand, to handle the handling, Shackleton banked his ambitions for the pole on pony power. An additional form of traction arose in an automobile, the first internal combustion-powered anything to head south. William Beardmore purchased the Scottish manufacturer, Errol Johnson, when it went bankrupt, and he gave the expedition a modified version of one of the vehicles that played a major part in the dire financial straits of the company that made it. The four-cylinder version of the Errol Johnson dog cart, Sir William donated to the expedition as a means to generate publicity for the brand, featured an exhaust piping system to warm the feet of anyone driving it, to keep the carburetor from freezing over, and to melt snow in a special compartment to produce water for cooking. Shackleton felt confident the vehicle might make it to the South Pole. Anyone who's listened to the entire series to date will stand a good chance of making an accurate prediction regarding untried technology thrust into an extreme environment. While in the throes of his fundraising and ship securing, Ernest Shackleton's younger brother Frank became the source of a damaging scandal. Handsome and charming, in the family mould, Frank ensconced himself among the aristocratic set in Dublin and London. He engaged in several dodgy business ventures, but none of them of any greater order of magnitude dodginess than those of his older brother. But in 1907, while helping raise funds for the Antarctic expedition, Frank was implicated in the theft of the Irish crown jewels from Dublin Castle. No one was ever charged over the matter, but rumours circulated that the flamboyantly gay Frank stood to embarrass many prominent people if his interactions with the upper classes were ever fully investigated. Ernest stood by his brother through the scandal, though the association cost him some connections and nixed any funds those links may have garnered. Edward Guinness, the Earl of IV and Brewer of the Black Stuff, promised £2,000 if a further 6000 could be sourced. 4000 came in as a gift from Shackleton's cousin, William Bell, and Sir Philip Lee Brocklehurst, the second baronet of Brocklehurst, having come to Shackleton's attention through his representing Cambridge University in boxing, threw £2,000 into the expedition coffers to secure himself a berth aboard the Nimrod and a place in the shore party as assistant geologist. The refit could go ahead, with Shackleton giving the Nimrod the barkatine rigging so popular among the vessels heading south in this era.
At one point, Shackleton hoped to have Dr. Reginald Kirtlitz act as co-leader of the expedition. But at some point in the frenzy of preparations, the preferred role fell off Shackleton's radar, and Kirtlitz, bitterly disappointed, was left out. Shackleton approached other former shipmates from the Discovery, but received demurrals from Barn and Skelton. When he approached the man who replaced him at Hut Point, when invalided home, George Mulock let slip that the Discovery officers were already on board with Scott's developing but as yet unannounced plans for a return expedition. From Discovery's lower decks, Shackleton did find willing support in Petty Officers Frank Wilde and Ernest Joyce. As mentioned in episode 28, Joyce came into the fold when Shackleton sent his secretary after him when he happened to see Joyce pass the expedition office atop an omnibus. Wilde signed on in charge of stores and Joyce took dog handling duties, dogs still being part of the expedition plan, slated for local work around winter quarters. The scientific contingent at this point comprised Raymond Priestley and James Murray. Murray was a self-taught biologist. Priestley was an undergraduate in the geology program at the University of Bristol. Priestley's backhanded enthusiasm for polar work amounted to his being willing to do anything to get out of Bristol. On hearing the announcement of the expedition, Welsh-born Australian geologist Professor Tennant William Edgeworth David wrote to Shackleton requesting a berth aboard the Nimrod. David was interested as to whether Antarctica featured fossils of Glossopterus, an extinct genus of seed fern notable for its tongue-shaped leaves and for its presence among the fossil flora of Australia, India, Southern Africa and South America. In the days before Wegener's plate tectonics offered explanatory power to our understanding of present-day geological patterns, the land bridge hypothesis held sway. Echoing Hooker and Darwin's thoughts about connectivity between floral and faunal assemblages, the land bridge hypothesis posited that the disparate distributions of common species in fossil deposits across continents indicated that at some point in geological history, land bridges connected the continents, allowing transfers of terrestrial flora and fauna precluded after the nominal land bridges subsided. Finding fossilised glossopterus in Antarctica could add weight to the land bridge hypothesis, so David was definitely keen to get south and fossic among the fossil flora. Shackleton recognised that without the hoped-for Wilson as senior scientist, the expedition lacked scientific clout. Besides holding scope to add credibility to the scientific program, David's considerable esteem and contacts in Australia held potential to gain the expedition endorsements and funds. Shackleton immediately took David on as senior scientist and asked that he begin seeking support for the expedition in Australia. A former student of David's, Douglas Mawson, showed interest in the project and on David's recommendation signed on as expedition physicist. Shackleton convinced Edgeworth David to join the shore party rather than just visit with the Nimrod. With a third of those overwintering engaged in scientific roles, the expedition promised more science per head than any previous endeavour. 400 applicants threw their hats into the expedition ring in response to a newspaper advertisement seeking to fill the remaining roles. Shackleton assembled a crew of 16 for the shore party. Among these, Jameson Adams of the Royal Navy Reserve, 
one of the last British naval officers to gain his Master Mariner's certification under sail, was selected as second-in-command and meteorologist. Aeneas McIntosh of the Merchant Navy was selected as second officer. George Marston, an art teacher, signed on as artist and handyman. William Roberts joined as cook. Dr Eric Marshall of the Royal Army Medical Corps joined as surgeon, surveyor, cartographer and photographer. Dr Alistair Mackay, naval surgeon and Boer War veteran, also joined as a surgeon. Bernard Day joined as carpenter and motor mechanic. And Bertrand Armitage, no relation that I can tell, took charge of the ponies. Slated to stay with the Nimrod through the winter months, Alfred Cheatham and John King Davis are notable for their involvement in further Antarctic exploration, but more of them are none. We're 3,000 words in, and we still haven't left Blighty. Inspired by his efforts at publishing the South Polar Times newspaper aboard the Discovery, Shackleton decided it would serve the expedition well to publish a book while in Antarctica. As with the South Polar Times, it would provide a midwinter distraction with people working up articles and images, but the novelty of generating the first book on the continent may have held the greater fascination. The novelty value alone could serve to generate post-expedition funds, and Shackleton decided to really pull out the stops in making a proper job of it. He sent Ernest Joyce and Frank Wilde on a three-week printing course at Sir Joseph Corston's printery in Hampshire. There they learnt about typesetting, design, acid etching, and the use of the various inks and dyes under different conditions. Sir Joseph donated a small printing press, the type, the inks and the papers. Antarctica's first compositors went south well stocked, if rather hastily trained. King Edward VII, while fond of Shackleton, could not offer the expedition his patronage because of its parlous finances in the months leading up to the departure. On visiting the ship in the Isle of Wight, he found himself reassured that the expedition would sail in good stead, and presented Shackleton with the Royal Victorian Order, an honour bestowed on Scott in similar circumstances while the present king was the former Prince of Wales. He gave the expedition his official patronage. The Nimrod departed Torquay on the 7th of August 1907, just inside the window necessary to afford a decent working summer season in the south. Shackleton travelled independent of the ship, heading to France to catch the faster India, to give him time to try to raise further funds in Australia. Also travelling separately, Sir Philip Lee Brocklehurst sailed south in first-class accommodations. On the 10th of August, Professor Edgeworth David wrote to the Australian Prime Minister, Alfred Deakin, requesting government financial assistance for the expedition. Already spending his own money on the instruments and consumables necessary for the scientific program he had in mind, exactly how close to the financial wind the expedition was sailing. Appealing to the national interests served in better understanding the effect Antarctica had on Australia's climate, southern ocean currents, and eventually even appealing to the national pride that might derive from Australia contributing to a successful polar journey, a galling tack to have to take for someone who previously campaigned so vigorously that Australia leave behind its fascination with sport and other such trivial sources of pride. David's efforts bore fruit. The government granted the expedition £5,000, 
with unilateral parliamentary support. The Nimrod arrived in Littleton, New Zealand, on the 23rd of November 1907, and the crew coalesced. The New Zealand government contributed £1,000 and supplied 100 sheets of one-penny stamps overprinted with the caption, Edward VII Land Post Office. Shackleton was sworn in as New Zealand postmaster to frank the stamps on any outgoing mail from the winter quarters, and the Australians were not happy. Having stumped up one-fifth the stake of their neighbours, the New Zealanders, by the cheap but apparently internationally compelling mechanism of establishing a post office on the continent, stood to get far more bang for their buck in terms of territorial credibility and international recognition of their Antarctic presence. Well played that nation, says I. Postmaster Shackleton mostly saw the stamps as a means to raise post-expedition funds by selling them to collectors, but I'll prematurely mention at this point that he never made as much from stamp sales as he hoped. Because, wait for it, philately will get you nowhere. Ooh, yeah. With the Nimrod only showing a metre of freeboard, five of the fifteen ponies were left ashore. The small ship was so crammed with kit and supplies that the Union Steamship Company did the expedition a favour of such magnitude that I wonder what might have come of the project without it. The USSC assigned the vessel Cunha to tow the Nimrod south, thereby saving the tiny sealers' tiny coal bunkers for working through the pack ice. Departing Littleton under tow on New Year's Day 1908, the Nimrod almost immediately experienced heavy seas. With so little freeboard, the deck was constantly awash, water sloshing in through the freeing ports when it wasn't actually overtopping the bulwarks. Two of the ten ponies died during the transit, thrown to the deck by the violence of the ship's motion and injured beyond hope of recovery. During the worst of the weather, the Nimrod signalled the Cunha to lay out oil. Pouring oil on troubled waters is usually cited as an ancient practice, but I know people who've done exactly that in an attempt to save their vessel and crew from foundering in heavy seas. The idea is that a small quantity of oil forms a very thin skin across a very large area around the vessel. The altered surface tension of that skin takes the edge off the worst of the waves, giving the boat or ship a slightly increased chance of making it through another day or night to a point where the weather eases. I've never seen it in operation, and I don't hold much stock in the proposed mechanism, but members of my circle swear that opening the fuel cocks and letting the diesel out to form a slick around them got them through a particular storm, or prevented a listing ship from being turned turtle by the waves. The Cunha complied with the Nimrod's request, and some slight improvement was recorded. Whether the oil had any effect or not, the Nimrod made it through. On the 14th of January, the first icebergs came into view and the ships crossed the convergence, the Cunha becoming the first steel-hulled ship to do so. On the 15th, in sight of the pack, the Cunha dropped the tow after a transit of 1,500 nautical miles and began heading north. The Nimrod steered for Balloon Bight, site of Scott and Shackleton's balloon ascents in 1902. Where Balloon Bight should lie 
Shackleton found open water and a large number of fin and killer whales. The ice that formed the bite, which Scott felt unwarrantedly certain lay over land, must have collapsed, leaving the body of water Shackleton named the Bay of Wales. Wales with an H. Establishing winter quarters on the present ice shelf would offer a 90-mile advantage over anything McMurdo Sound had to offer to any pole journey. But what if the shelf collapsed beneath them, as it was clearly in the habit of doing? Shackleton determined to find a rock base on which to establish their winter quarters, but with the dense pack and icebergs encountered on sailing east precluding access to Edward VII land, the only available rocky option lay in Ross Island and in breaking his promise to Scott to steer clear of his former leader's stomping ground. Entering McMurdo Sound, Shackleton found ice preventing access to Hut Point and the barrier, and decided to wait and see if the sea ice would break out. During this waiting period, 2nd Officer Aeneas McIntosh was hit in the right eye by a loading hook. Doctors Marshall and Mackay performed surgery to remove the badly damaged eye, and McIntosh was forced to give up his part in the subsequent shore party to return to New Zealand with the Nimrod. He later rejoined the Nimrod after convalescing and sailed south in 1909 to help collect the shore party, and he made further voyages south to be recounted in future episodes of Ice Coffee. On the 3rd of February, with the sea ice still fast, Shackleton selected a dell on the side of Cape Royds as the site for the prefabricated hut that would form their base of operations, hoping that their being 20 miles north of Hut Point might serve to mitigate any negative response to having broken his word to Scott. It took 10 days to erect the hut and a further three weeks to seal it against drafts, fit it with the stove and the acetylene lighting system and to furnish it with their equipment, instruments, food and personal effects. Unloading progressed slowly. Captain Rupert England felt very uncomfortable at any sign of ice near the ship, and would regularly take the Nimrod far offshore, precluding any unloading work until the offending ice lay clear. Shackleton protested what he perceived as England's excessive caution, and went as far as demanding that he stand down, which Captain England refused to do. When the ship departed Cape Royds on the 22nd of February, the ship's engineer, Harry Dunlop, carried a letter from Shackleton to the expedition's agent in New Zealand, requesting that England not be allowed to return as captain of the Nimrod the following year. On the Nimrod's reaching New Zealand, word about the Cape Royds winter quarters quickly reached England and horrified Scott and Sir Clements Markham. Scott was furious at what he perceived as a betrayal, he made multiple copies of the correspondence in which the agreement to stay clear of Scott's patch was made clear, sending them to anyone he thought might hold some influence in condemning Shackleton's decision to set up winter quarters in McMurdo Sound. Scott felt he could have nothing to do with Shackleton on his return, and that his actions brought a vulgar element to the formerly pristine and wholesome realm of Antarctic endeavour. Immediately after the ship left, the sea ice broke out, cutting off any scope to make depot journeys toward either pole in the time remaining before the winter set in. To make use of the available light and to give the inexperienced contingent among the shore party some opportunity to experience outdoor life and sledging, Shackleton ordered the first ascent of Mount Erebus. Adams, Marshall, David, Mawson, Mackay and Brocklehurst 
headed out towing two sledges on the 5th of March, reaching the 3,794-metre-high caldera five days later, though Brocklehurst didn't summit, having suffered frostbite to his toes and stayed in camp during the final push. Mawson measured the caldera as 270 metres deep and made some observations about the eruption processes therein. What took five days working against gravity only took two working with it, the team rolling their equipment downhill and following it as quickly as the conditions allowed. The routines that would carry the shore party through the winter found their rhythm. A meteorological screen and an anemometer were rigged. Murray began trawling for marine life and working up the local lichen species. His discovery of rotifers in a nearby freshwater tarn caused much amusement as he repeatedly froze and thawed the tiny animals to no apparent ill effect. The cook and his rotor of messmen worked to keep everyone fed and supplemented the coal supply with seal blubber, which burns well enough if you have a hot enough fire going at the kickoff. Mawson made observations of local ice structures and auroras, and David, Priestley and Brocklehurst geologised the local area. Work began on Aurora Australis, Joyce and Wilde's magnum opus. Typesetting in the close quarters proved the challenge, with many hours of patient work sometimes lost to the jostling inevitable in such a situation, and a candle was needed beneath the ink tray to keep the ink liquid long enough to make a print, but the novice compositors persevered. Marston provided the illustrations and the lithography, and the Penguin Press eventually provided enough copies of a high enough quality that 30 editions of the 120-page book, bound in covers made by Bernard Day from Vesterboard, an early plywood, taken from the packing cases, were completed. The wooden covers often bore labels from their earlier contents. Copies of Aurora Australis often took on these labels as their edition names, giving rise to the butter copy, for example. In 1988, Mary J. Goodman, a Los Angeles-based historian, republished Aurora Australis with some accompanying notes about the expedition and the story behind the book. Based on the Julienne copy, it's an attractive book and an entertaining read. The camp was run as teetotal, though alcohol was available for birthdays and special occasions, such as Midwinter's Day, and for when no one was looking, and for when everyone tacitly agreed not to look. In my experience, establishing a dry camp or ship simply displaces the alcohol intake from the mess to the berths. The winter didn't all run smooth. As with the Discovery expedition, not everyone took well to Shackleton's persona or approach to leadership, and tension between him and Dr. Marshall was felt by all. Additionally, only four of the ponies survived the winter to the point that hauling for the South and South Magnetic Poles commenced. Some of the attrition is ascribed to their having ingested volcanic ash from the ground surrounding the camp. On the 29th of October, 1908, Shackleton, Wilde, Adams and... Surprisingly, given the animus between him and Shackleton, Dr. Marshall headed south for the barrier. A party of six provided support, heading south to lay the depots that would see the pole party all right for food on their return journey. 
Adams was kicked in the shin by one of the ponies just as they were leaving, opening up a gash through which the bone showed. But, being hard as nails, he didn't seek to swap out from his position as an early 20th century Argonaut, seeking to go where no one previously went. The party set south with the four remaining ponies towing the four sledges, and all hands not needed to manage the ponies riding a sledge towed by the Errol Johnson car. This didn't last long. As you predicted, the car quickly balked, not getting much past the barn glacier. The journey across the barrier was characterised by near misses in the crevasses and a difficult tooth extraction with no dentistry kit. Marshall applying his surgeon's skills in perhaps the worst equipped and situated dental surgery on the continent, easing Adam's debilitating toothache. As the team pushed south, ingesting fewer calories than they expended, food became an obsession for everyone. Discussions focusing on what favourite foods they intended eating when they got the opportunity. To ensure no scope for disagreement over portions, a maritime tradition for doling out short rations was applied. One person turned their back. The messman for the day would point to a portion and ask, Whose? The member of the party with their back turned would nominate the recipient for that unseen portion, and the process repeated until everyone was fed. The horses began to succumb to the strain of the task set them. One was shot on the 21st of November, and the party fed on its flesh, depoting the remainder for the return journey. Two more ponies were similarly dispatched on the barrier as their suffering became too much for their handlers to witness. On the 26th of November, they reached the furthest south achieved by Scott, Wilson and Shackleton in 1902, celebrating with two tablespoons each of liqueur. Shackleton began incorporating horse maize into the diet of the humans. In early December, they reached the southern limit of the ice barrier, discovering the 50-kilometre-wide glacier that was hidden from sight by fog in 1902. Shackleton named the towering ice river the Beardmore Glacier after his former employer and financial supporter and started climbing. On the 7th of December, the remaining pony fell down a crevasse, disappearing without trace. On Christmas Day, they reached the edge of the Polar Plateau, but only one month's food remained for an estimated two months further hauling, and already they were only taking in half the calories they expended in each day's march. Christmas dinner, featuring treats of plum pudding, medicinal brandy, cocoa and a spoonful each of creme de moffe, was taken in a contemplative mood. Wilde wrote in his diary, May none but my worst enemies ever spend their Christmas in such a dreary, God-forgotten spot as this. Facing 500 miles at high altitude, Shackleton tried not to fret about the mathematics of their situation, but he couldn't escape the inescapability of it. Strong headwinds gave them grief, and a tin of biscuits found to be overcooked, thin and all but worthless as sledging fuel, badly dented morale. On the 9th of January, 1909, a decision was made to cache the equipment and to make a bolt to within the 100-mile mark of the pole setting their stamp on furthest south and leaving only that final hundred miles to those who would come after them. This is bold stuff, and I don't think I made enough of such dash tactics in episode 28, 
describing the final day of skiing south undertaken by Scott and Wilson. Yes, travelling light gives scope for higher speeds and greater distances, but any shift in conditions towards the adverse and the gamble falls apart. With no shelter, no food, no spares of anything, and navigation made increasingly challenging as weather worsens, the cache and bolt strategy holds scope for a party to come badly unstuck. By causal necessity, we usually only hear from those parties for whom it works, as when it fails, the tail dies with the risk-takers. Travelling light, fast and risky, Shackleton and co. reached their furthest south. Shackleton wrote, We have shot our bolt, and the tail is latitude 88 degrees, 23 minutes south, longitude 162 degrees east. They raised the Union flag and deposited a brass cylinder containing a sheet of the one-penny stamps and some other unspecified documents. Our food lies ahead, and death stalks us from behind. I sometimes wonder at Shackleton thinking ghostwriters is necessary. A sail on the sledge made use of the prevailing winds to help them reach the edge of the plateau once more. The descent down the Beardmore was quick but fraught, with many crevasse falls and rapidly diminishing food stocks. Half rations all round. One morning, Shackleton donated his breakfast biscuit to Wilde, whose long-remembered gratitude for the generosity contrasts sharply with the venomous coded journal entries he kept throughout the journey, particularly criticising Marshall as not pulling his weight. Marshall was less circumspect in his criticisms, finding Shackleton a deplorable liar and a charlatan. But for all the diarised vitriol, the team held together in these trying circumstances. I guess the fallout was to die, so they didn't fall out. On the 26th of January, the biscuits ran out, leaving only tea, cocoa and pony maize to sustain the team. Coming across a previous camp, they found three pieces of chocolate and a fragment of biscuit left behind, and applied the usual routine for selecting who got what. Shackleton felt tremendous chagrin at receiving the coveted biscuit bit. He was as duty-conscious, in his way, as Scott, and those who know of his exploits in the ITAE will already recognise this concern for others later expresses itself in even more trying circumstances than described here. They reached Dead Horse Depot on the 13th of February, but this was the last food between there and Minna Bluff. Shackleton turned to the medicine kit to keep them moving, giving everyone forced march tablets. Taken from the label on the bottle. Forced march. Allays hunger and prolongs the power of endurance. Containing the combined active principles of kola nut and coca leaves. Directions. One to be dissolved in the mouth every hour when undergoing continued mental strain or physical exertion. On the 21st of February they reached the Bluff Depot and more food of more varieties than their minds could comfortably encompass. They established camp and fed themselves well. But with Adams and Marshall weak from the march and racked with dysentery, Shackleton and Wilde pushed on to Hut Point to seek assistance in bringing the rest of the party in. They found the hut empty. A note left for them let them know that the Nimrod was back from New Zealand. Hoping the ship was close enough to see the smoke, they set fire to the magnetic instrument hut left empty on the departure of the Discovery. 
This did the trick, and the Nimrod arrived in short order. After three hours aboard and a big feed of bacon and eggs, Shackleton headed out on the barrier once more with three of the ship's party, bringing Adams and Marshall aboard on the 4th of March. The Pole Party covered 1,700 nautical miles in 128 days, with long periods of relaying across difficult terrain and ice conditions trebling the effort required to achieve a given distance. While all of that played out on the barrier and the Polar Plateau, Edgeworth David, Douglas Mawson and Alistair Mackay, whose only sledging and glacier traversing experience comprised the Erebus ascent, departed Cape Royds on the 5th of October, seeking the magnetic pole, making a start with a car which soon gave out on them. Mackay injured his wrist while working the starter handle of the car, but, on receiving assurances his companions were fine with their surgeon starting out with his arm in a sling, didn't seek to swap out with another member of the shore party. They hauled their sledges across the McMurdo Sound sea ice to the Victoria Land coast, which they claimed for Britain on the 17th of October. They turned north, munching on seals to save their sledging supplies for when they left the coast, and crossed the Nordenskjold and Drygalski ice tongues. The team took to travelling at night when the temperature afforded less sticky surfaces over which to haul their gear. Originally planning to use the Drygalski Glacier to ascend to the plateau, the crevasse fields of that mighty ice river saw them opt for the less majestic but safer backstairs passage, after caching large quantities of equipment to lighten their load. Safer is a relative term, and crevasse falls were frequent for all involved. In one instance, Mawson gave some inkling of the hard-as-nailsness that would later make him a legend among Australians and Antarctic history buffs, when hanging in his traces, awaiting the lowering of a rope by which to help him climb out. He took ice crystal samples from the crevasse wall and threw them up to David at the crevasse lip for later examination. They reached the plateau on the 15th of January, 1909. Mawson, measuring carefully, usually for two hours at a time, and often needing to bare his hands for the fine manipulation of the Lloyd Creek dip circle, found only 15 minutes of deviation from the vertical. It's been a while since dip circles featured in the series, so I'll remind you that a dip circle is a gimbaled compass in which the needle can measure the vertical component in a magnetic field. David calculated that if they stayed put, the oscillations of the south magnetic pole, which meanders about over several miles per day in a manner suspected to reflect patterns in the currents in the Earth's ferrous core, would eventually see the dip circle needle reach the vertical. They could, if they chose, let the pole come to them. Instead, they decided, as the southern party did on their final day outward bound, to cache their gear and make a sprint. Again, a big risk, but they were, like their counterparts working the south, short on food and running ragged. On the 16th they got their sprint on, took dip circle readings at the point they thought most representative of the meandering pole, raised a flag, claimed the area, took a selfie, and sprinted back to the cache camp. To give some idea of the magnitude of the magic words needed to claim a territory, I quote Edgeworth David, I hereby take possession of this area, now containing the magnetic pole, for the British Empire. Yep, heady stuff. Back that up with some stamp franking, and you got a territorial claim on. 
Later assessments of Mawson's dip circle data cast doubt they were within the area through which the pole oscillated at the time. It's since moved on from the site they reached, and now oscillates in a patch of ocean. But I'll pay the effort. The South Pole and the South Magnetic Pole aren't arbitrary, but they are, when you're standing on the ground near them, abstractions in the sense that the finer the scale at which you measure them, the less you can say you are at them. It's important that we understand magnetic deviation, but how is it different if a person is standing at the South Magnetic Pole, as opposed to just being able to accurately determine where it is? I don't care whether they did or did not nail this mercurial natural phenomenon. They worked hard and got within a geographic bees dick of it. To say they didn't reach the South Magnetic Pole is, to my mind, analogous to saying that Michael Collins didn't go to the moon. The return journey, like all return journeys recounted to date, was a fraught affair of insufficient food, frostbites and snow blindness. Mawson records waking up with his lips gummed together by dried blood from the many sores opened up on his face by frost damage. Food became the obsession, and the ration routine of one person turning their back and nominating the recipient for each portion was employed to ensure fair distribution. Edgeworth David's mental state began to deteriorate under the strain, and he experienced periods of delirium. The senior by two decades, his body wasn't holding up as well as those of the younger men, who were by no means in the peak of fitness under the regimen they endured. Mackay, alarmed at apparently erratic behaviour in David, demanded he cede the leadership to Mawson. Approaching the coast, they reached their depot on the 4th of February, 1909, their health concerns easing for the moment, but facing uncertainty about their pickup. No sign of the Nimrod. Unlike Shackleton, who knew the ship was about once he reached Hut Point, the Magnetic Pole Party faced the same uncertainty as Borkrevink's team at Cape Adare and Nordenskjold's disparate parties around the peninsula. Was the ship still afloat? Was the ship nearby? Would the ship sight them and collect them? With the sea ice out of the sound, an overland traverse to the barrier and from there back to Cape Royds seemed likely beyond them. Happily, the following morning they heard a loud report. The Nimrod lay in sight and fired pyrotechnics to draw their attention. This itself was a matter of exemplary maritime attention to detail. The Nimrod passed that stretch of coast the previous night, searching for them after collecting Priestley, Brocklehurst and Bertram Armitage from their geological foray to the Ferrar Glacier region, but the coast was obscured by falling snow for four hours of the transit, so the Nimrod backtracked to ensure all possible campsites received scrutiny. A good thing too, as the magnetic pole party was spent. Charging for the shore, Mawson disappeared down a crevasse, and he and his companions were too exhausted to get him out. Mackay hailed the Nimrod with the unusual but necessary phrasing, Mawson has fallen down a crevasse, and we got to the magnetic pole. First mate, John King Davis, went ashore and effected Mawson's retrieval. The champions of the magnetic pole were safe after 1,260 miles covered in 122 days. This remained a record for an unsupported trek in polar regions into the 1980s. Shackleton rationalised, quite effectively to my tastes, 
his failure to achieve his stated aim in a comment made in a letter to his wife. I thought, dear, that he would rather have a live ass than a dead lion. But his nation didn't perceive him as a failure. On his return, the government granted the expedition £20,000 to cover outstanding debts and remaining expenses. Ernest Shackleton received the knighthood for his efforts, and the crew each received the Polar Medal. The discoveries that the Victoria Land Mountains extended several hundred miles further south than previously recognised, the discovery of coal seams in the sandstone beacons adjacent to the Beardmore Glacier, the new record furthest south and the achievement of reaching the South Magnetic Pole put the expedition in good stead with geography enthusiasts. Shackleton, more attuned to branding and the immediate need to get product on the market than his predecessors, hired a New Zealand journalist, Edward Saunders, to help write a popular account of the expedition while on the voyage home. With an introduction by Hugh Robert Mill to give it street cred among the geography set, and contributions from Edgeworth David to keep the science to the fore. The book went to press in 1909 and sold well. It's an easier read than many earlier and contemporary analogues, but I don't think I gave Scott enough praise for his two-volume account of the Discovery Expedition on that front. Both works are readable, but I think in literary terms, Scott's is the better effort. But either way, both publications stand head and shoulders above the turgid works that went before them. Shackleton, handsome, gregarious and charismatic, caught the public attention and played to it masterfully, where Scott had caught it but only endured it. Shackleton made a tour of Europe and North America, giving lectures in 123 cities and receiving medals and accolades from the various geographic societies along the way. Madame Tussaud's Creepatorium made a wax effigy of Sir Ernest that remained on display into the 1960s. Scott could have poured cold water on the national celebration of their polar hero by publishing the correspondence mapping Shackleton's broken promise, but he kept his counsel, congratulating Shackleton for his achievements and attending many public events celebrating the triumphs of the British Antarctic expedition. Duty and honour. Duty and honour. The man must have had it written through him like a stick of rock. He was angry, furious to be precise, and expressed his fury eloquently in voluminous private correspondence. But he had his own plans underway and didn't want to risk public opprobrium by slighting the man of the hour. Sir Clements Markham was less circumspect, poisoning Shackleton's well at every opportunity, questioning his claims about further south and even going so far as to lie that Sir Ernest never passed his master's exams something that should have been easy for someone with his connections to verify, and therefore all the more damning for his saying so, but it simply was not true. He really was a nasty piece of work in my eyes, was Sir Clements. The perpetually short funding of the expedition required that the scientific contingent pay their own way in terms of publishing their findings. Edgeworth David found himself uncomfortable charging admission to the lecture series he gave in Australia, Figuring the scientific footing on which he requested government resources made it axiomatic that the public should reap the benefits arising from those resources. But he wasn't a rich man before embarking with Shackleton and was still out of pocket over some of the instruments he purchased before heading south. In September 1909, two conflicting claims of primacy at the North Pole arose. Robert E. Peary, 
after eight attempts spaced over two decades, sent word from Labrador that he achieved the pole in April 1909. Frederick Cook, who received ice coffee attention as surgeon aboard the Belgica under de Gerlache, claimed to have reached the pole in April 1908, the news being delayed by his tribulations in extracting himself from the Arctic. The conflicting American claims have generated much conjecture and literature in the century since. I mention them here because of the timing confluence with the Nimrod's return to Britain, and because the claim on the North Pole would affect subsequent expeditions south. Cook and Peary's claims reverberated through the world of competitive exploration and influenced many decisions, affecting many more expeditions slated for attention in future episodes. There's still more episode 31 to go, with an interview with an artist my housekeeping notes to follow. But here's Sir Ernest Shackleton recounting highlights of the British Antarctic expedition in his own words on a wax cylinder recording, which was the style at the time. Main results of the British Antarctic expedition of 1907 under my command are as follows. We reached a point within 97 geographical miles of the South Pole the only thing that stopped us from reaching the actual point was the lack of 50 pounds of food. Another party reached for the first time the South Magnetic Pole. Another party reached the summit of a great active volcano, Mount Erebus. We made many interesting geological and scientific discoveries and had many narrow escapes throughout the whole time. A typical narrow escape was when we were going up the great glacier towards the pole. We were marching along, three of us harnessed to one sledge in very bad light. Our last pony was being led by another man with 500 pounds of stores. All of a sudden, we heard a shout of help from the man behind. We looked round and saw him supporting himself by his elbows on the edge of a chasm. There was no sign of the pony, and the sledge was jammed with its bow in the crevasse. We rushed back and helped the man out, and then hauled the sledge out. Then we lay down to have a look, but nothing but a black dust lay below. The pony may have fallen a thousand or a thousand five hundred feet. Anyhow, he's gone. What has happened was this. We, the first three, with our weight distributed, crossed in safety in the bad light the bridge over an unseen chasm. The weight of the pony following was too much. It crashed through, but the swingle tree of the sledge snapped, and that saved the sledge. The man leading the pony said, that he just felt a rushing sort of wind. The rope was torn out of his hand. He flung himself forward and thus escaped. After this, we four men had uh, a thousand pounds to pull, and we were unable to pull the whole load at once, so we had to relay. That is, we hauled half our load for a mile, then we walked back a mile, and then we hauled the other half up. So for every mile we gained to the south, we had to cover three to do it. And slowly we arose up the largest and the longest glacier in the world, 
Some days spending 12 hours doing three miles, other times spending nearly half the day hauling each sledge up by means of the alpine rope. And thus we went along and thus we returned, having done a work that has resulted in great advantage to science and for the first time returning without the loss of a single human life. And throughout all this, I was helped by a party of men who were regardless of themselves and only thinking of the good of the expedition. I, Ernest Shackleton, have today, March the 30th, dictated this record. A listener brought the Antarctic work of sound artist Professor Philip Samatsis to my attention about a month ago. Impressed by his output, I contacted him through his employer, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, and arranged an interview to find out what makes the man tick and how he edits the ticking out in post. I hope you find his perspectives on Antarctica as interesting as I do, and check out his online output mentioned in our discussion and linked to in the blog show notes. I'll also put a link to the blog at the blog so you can find it easily. Thanks very much for speaking to Ice Coffee, Professor Smartsis. Can you tell us what your role in RMIT is? Yeah, well, I'm the uh, coordinator of sound at um, in the School of Art, and I guess uh, my role in that is that I a part of my role is research, a part of it is teaching, and part of it's management. So I teach a couple of courses into. Um, into the undergrad program, and that's uh, immersive environments, so looking at the history and practice of um, spatial sound, as well as sound cultures, which is, I guess, a history of 20th century avant-garde music and sound art practice. And I also supervise about four or five PhD and master's students as well in sonic research. And how did you train into that? What's, what's the process of becoming... Uh, a sound artist. Oh, sound artist um, is, from my perspective, is um, really a, an elaboration on my interest in experimental music. So things like electronic music, avant-garde classical music, um, experimental rock, that kind of thing. Um, most of my my listening, or my formative listening, happened um, towards the early to mid seventies. So a lot of kind of experimentation occurring there around studio process, new instruments, electronic instruments in particular coming through, new forms and um, compositional ideas and styles emerging from from different genres of music as well. So I became interested in the sound of music, not so much music virtuosity. Um, so hero worship and you know being amazed by someone's piano skills it was more about how uh, artists or, or bands developed a certain sound. So I became interested in sound engineers and producers rather than artists per se. And so that kind of became the foundation of my interest in sound as 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 um, as a, a mode of recording, as a as a form of memory, as a as a way of narrating. Uh, I've kind of sound operating outside of musical convention and musical boundaries and um, and, and someone like John Cage would talk about all sound as music and that it's perception that is musical and um, and that that for me holds holds some weight in fact that I consider anything to be musical and I kind of organize in my own mind 
in terms of you know a hierarchy of tone and, and melody and rhythm and density of mass and movement um, in the way that people appreciate you know Beethoven or, or the Beatles or, or Radiohead in a similar way. And how did that background and your role in the institute lead you south? Wow, it's it's interesting. It probably more so, uh, I guess, came from different different sources. I think um, Antarctica, in particular, is for, for most people a, a mysterious, unknowable place. Even though it's been depicted um, on on TV and in cinema and, and radio and, and and various forms of publications and, and so forth, but yeah, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's unknowable for, for someone who hasn't been there. Um, and I was very much inspired uh, by a number of things. I think um, Frank Hurley's photography was one, in particularly in the way he kind of um, presented Antarctica as a phantasmagorical landscape, so something that was very haunting and mysterious, um, particularly um, the shots of the the, 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 the frozen <laughs> the frozen ship <laughs> uh, sinking <laughs> in 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 in, um, in the ice there. Um, and and also, I guess, um, sci-fi films. Um, Howard Hawks's thing from, from childhood was a really strong and striking memory. H.B. Lovecraft and, um, uh, and, and Frankenstein has reference to... Um, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein has reference to Antarctica. So kind of, the, I guess, reading kind of uh, fantastic literature... Um, looking at sci-fi films, looking at some of the work of Hurley and Ponting, um, and some of the modern, you know, um, I guess, um, uh, readily available nature documentaries um, that were, were available at the time that, that I was looking at all of this, um, kind of gave me a, a sense of, um, of, the, of the continent, um, but it probably didn't answer, none of them answered the thing that I'll that I wanted to know about Antarctica and, and uh, the thing I want to know about Antarctica are about the systems and protocols that sustain life in a very hostile and remote location uh, such as an Antarctic ice station you know how do you take a shower where does the where where does the effluent go what do you do with garbage you know just the very basic what kind of clothing do you have to wear how cold is it you know um, how do you maintain social cohesion um, yeah, so there's just a whole bunch of questions I had in my mind as to, you know, how how does life function down there? And I think because I I operate and live in an institute, um, I think some of that thinking kind of was, um, I guess, directed towards Antarctica and life down there and and how how one sustains their their sanity and uh, and and I guess the technologies that are in place uh, in order to kind of maintain life down there. So that became the foundation of my first application to the Australian Antarctic Division, was to go down as a sound artist, totally ignore all the penguins and the elephant seals and the icebergs and just focus on um, toilets flushing, you know, showers running, people putting on clothes, all that kind of stuff. So the very mundane, banal kinds of actions of life down there. But for us, incredibly extraordinary because we don't, we're not privy to those. We don't have access to those, and and they're completely different experiences down there than what they are. Having a shower down there is not having a shower here. It's a very different thing. <laughs> and what was the mechanism of how how does an artist get to Antarctica? 
Well, the Australian Antarctic Division has been running a arts fellowship program uh, for quite some time, probably under different names, but over the last 30 to 40 years, they've been placing artists uh, on Australian Antarctic Research Stations and, and Macquarie Island as well. Um, so it was an application process, which is an annual annual process um, where artists of any kind of um, discipline or background and experience can apply. Uh, it's really um, judged on the project and um, I guess the, the, the type of logistical support it requires, um, how realistic, how achievable it is. And, and often you don't know until you're there in terms of how realistic something is. Um, so my application to the Australian Antarctic Division was really essentially looking at the systems and protocols required to sustain life in a remote station. And they, they when I was successful, they uh, ascribed um, Davis Station to me as, as my, my place of study. And they chose Davis because it's one of the more benign locations in Antarctica. It's um, in the ice-free part of the Vestfold Hills, so there's no permanent ice around the station. Um, so it's so it's quite accessible in the sense that you can walk around. You don't need um, a lot of survival training. You don't need a lot of survival gear to go out into the field. Um, there's not a lot of wind as well, uh, so it's one of the least windiest places of Antarctica because the Vestfold Hills kind of um, operate as a form of buffer uh, uh, from the catabatics that blow off the um, the ice shelf. Um, and it's also known as the Riviera of the South. And so when I got there in my freezer suit and you know my thermals and and all that kind of stuff. You know, I run into people in shorts and T-shirts and it's, you know, zero, but with, you know, the ozone hole and everything else, it feels like, you know, 10, 12, 15 degrees. It's extremely warm. So I felt completely out of place in my freezer suit, which is really <laughs> designed for much harsher conditions. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's uh, things like that you, you don't really expect. You know, foot, what kind of footwear, you know, one would take down there. Um, you know, they, 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 the AED uh, equips you with the type of equipment you need for essentially um, doing field work on the plateau, you know, so minus 20, minus 30, windy, cold, you know, all that kind of stuff. You got, you got your um, Sorrel boots and, 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 and all that kind of thing. But, you know, the reality is all you need is, a, you know, uh, some hiking boots, a pair of jeans, a T-shirt, and maybe a kind of a windbreaker. And for all intents and purposes, the first three weeks that I was there, that was my, that was my outfit. So no one kind of prepares you for that kind of thing until you get down there. You kind of think, well, you know, I've been colder in Melbourne, <laughs> you know, in in spring than what it was down there. So it's always, yeah, it derails some some of the the, the, the kind of expectations and mythology around uh, how harsh it is down there too. Well, that in turn derails my next question, which was, <laughs> did the conditions you experienced pose any special challenges in terms of equipment and battery life? No, not really. I, I, I must say it was, it was a pretty easy, it was a pretty easy time. I, um, yeah, the, the weather did shift. I, I arrived in the middle of summer um, 2010, so I arrived towards the end of January. Uh, temperatures, as I said, were hovering around zero degrees, um, very light breezes. Um, but I was at Davis for six weeks and um, I travelled by icebreaker. So it took 12 days to get there from Hobart at Davis for, um, for six weeks. And during that time, the temperature dropped from, from essentially zero to close to minus 20. And each day it would 
gradually drop one degree or so. So it was a very slow and progressive shift to winter. Uh, well, I see, I left um, Davis around about uh, middle of March or so, approximately. Um, so it was a, a relatively slow de de decline, if you like, into into cold, but the um, the wind started to pick up much more towards the end too. So the the real challenges were were presented to me towards the last week or two of the trip, when temperatures were hovering around minus fifteen, minus twenty, wind chill uh, makes it a bit colder. Um, uh, but the technology, I was, I was very careful in terms of what technology I took, and I, I took up um, multiple recorders and microphones, so I, I factored in for, for, for failure and redundancy as well. Should a microphone fail, I had others to, to choose from. Should a recorder fail, I had two others on me and things like that. So I ended up taking about 100 kilos of equipment with me, so it was like, you know, a fair amount <laughs> to, to cover all bases, and um, yeah. You've, <clears throat> pardon me, you first came on my radar when a listener linked me to the radio presentation that you edited together for a French yeah. program. Yeah. How much raw material did that represent and how long did it take you to, to make that piece? Yeah, that was a commission by France Culture uh, in collaboration with the ABC. Um, and uh, it's the title of the work was Antarctica and Absent Presence. Uh, and it was a radio commission for um, a 56-minute 50, work to be, to be broadcast through French um, national radio in its territories. Um, and so I, I essentially wanted to kind of present uh, a, a set of impressions of, um, of a trip to Antarctica and the kind of the, the unusual encounters one has within, within that particular environment. And so it's a, it has a compendium of recordings that I made over over the three months that I was away um, during the first trip down, and so all of it is is um, undoctored in the sense that they're all raw recordings from the field. So I haven't processed or abstracted or manipulated any of the recordings. So they're as as pure as I could make them. Compositionally, there are a number of things going on in terms of layering and uh, mixing and, and playing around with volume relationships and, and things like that. So it's not to say that they're pure in that sense. It is composed and constructed um, to kind of maximise a sense of um, drama contained within the works. Um, but essentially, I think I think I, I must have recorded over 500 hours of sound on the trip, you know, I'm, I'm there as a full-time sound recorder, so every day I'm recording sound. So for, for three months, I recorded probably 10 to 12 hours of sound each day kind of thing of anything I could get my hands on because um, as, for, as far as I was concerned, it was the only time I would ever get to Antarctica. So I, I might as well maximise the opportunity as, as, as best I can. That's not to say that 500 hours are all useful or interesting, but it just meant that I had a lot of material that I could draw on for various projects and things. Um, so, um, so the, the composition itself took two weeks to produce um, in France, and it, I'd already pre-selected a number of um, sounds that I want to work with. The complexity of it was that I, I chose to work with a, an actress as a narrator uh, that kind of uh, described um, the environments in which um, the listener was um, uh, listening to, I guess. Um, and so just writing the text and getting the performance right and, and, and things like that and not being a French speaker, you know, going through interpreters and, 
um, and trying to get the tone right and, and things. That, that took uh, quite some time, in fact. And then we did an English version uh, upon my return from France. And so there are two versions of the work, one in French and one in English. But whilst, whilst um, they're similar, they're not the same. They're, 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 they're a little bit different in terms of the works, not just the language, but in terms of structure of the work as well. Um, the, the radio broadcast in Australia was shorter, so I had to edit the composition down. doesn't have the same pacing. Uh, and um, just getting the right tone from the actress in Australia was, was very difficult again too because I, I kind of wanted to set up a, a basically a dream state that someone was, was dreaming Antarctica. So rather than a, a very excited actor you know, going crazy about the ice and the, 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 the icebergs or the glaciers and things. I just wanted someone to be as flat and uninteresting as possible, like they were talking in their sleep. And so that was hard when you've got a professional actor. Kind of, it's um, it's um, antithetical to, to kind of their training, you know, which is to be excited and exaggerated and expressive and all that kind of stuff. So I wanted them to do the complete opposite. <laughs> but being the ABC, I had to work with a professional actor or else I could have got, you know, I would have been happy to work with an amateur person, an amateur in the sense of an untrained voice. And uh, that was my preference, but I wasn't allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a larger work in the offing, the the book that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So the so um, the text uh, that informed the radio work uh, comes from a, a larger text that I've written uh, that's been published by Thames and Hudson soon. I think in October it should be all out at last, uh, which has been a, a process. Um, and so it wasn't, wasn't. I didn't keep a journal when I was in when I was in the ice. Um, what I was focused on was um, was sound recording, and so I, I took very few images as well. And uh, and even a camera was an afterthought. I, I wasn't planning on taking any cameras. Uh, it's just that I, um, my friends insisted <laughs> that I take a camera. Um, so it kind of explains the type of person you, you're talking to here. So it's just purely sonic. I wanted to present Antarctica in a completely new light, in a completely new way, a new level of engagement for audiences. And so I was very fixated on how to record these conditions, um, these these particular atmospheres and environments and, and settlements. Um, so I had a broad range of technology and, and, and microphones to draw from. Um, and so I got back with hundreds of hours of recordings. I started to compose the works. I started to present them as sound installations in galleries and as performance works in concert. Um, and I kind of I came to a point when I wanted to, to publish them as as you know as as a recorded artifact, uh, whether it's CD or yeah, LP or something like that. But you know, during that time, the whole uh, world of distribution and consumption and um, and even um, even just the market for music had shifted so much in the last five or six years. People aren't prepared to really pay for music. Um, people don't buy CDs and LPs so much anymore. It's all about streaming and downloading and, and all that kind of stuff. So I acknowledge that, that things have changed in that way. I'm someone who buys LPs. I'm someone who appreciates CDs. And, you know, I'm more than happy to pay my $30 to buy an album kind of thing rather than, you know, rip it from, from the net and stuff. And um, And so... So part of me had, you know, wanted to kind of present this material in 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 a way that made sense, and a part of me acknowledged that most people would uh, wouldn't consume it in the way that I would consume it. Um, that they were happy to kind of stream it, download it, put it on their headphones, catch a tram, all that kind of stuff is just kind of not the way I want the music to be heard at all. Um, so I thought, well, how do I control 
the, the type of consumption one has of the work itself. Uh, how do I maintain the integrity of the work and my vision? Um, how, do I, how do I maintain respect for the, for, for the source material, the continent, and everything that it's going through? And so I decided well deep into the project around 2013, um, after composing a number of works, that I would like to place them within a book. Um, not so much a CD or an, al an album, but a book. And the book would be there designed to contextualise the sound recordings. Um, and so I wrote um, a diary, or in diary format. Um, I see. <laughs> a diary format. Um, observations of, of um, my field work and of Antarctic environments uh, from listening to the, the recordings. You know, so the recordings jog my memory. I wrote down thoughts and, and memories. But whether they're accurate or not, you know, whether they're fully truthful or not, it's not it's not it's not it's supposed to be a poetic kind of exploration of my time and experiences of Antarctica. The truth really is in the recordings, you know, and the writing is all about the people, the places, the smells, the sights and things that when you're listening to the recordings, you know, you're kind of getting a, a vision or a picture of what it is you're listening to rather than it being a completely abstract experience of an iceberg you know the book is there to give you a better sense of well what is that iceberg you know what's it look like how does it feel what's it smell like that kind of thing so the book is um the book was a really lovely thing to do and the radio um work kind of gives you an insight in the tone of it um because the, the the writing is kind of poetic it's a little bit ambivalent and obtuse um it's it's scientific it's factual it's kind of a, a it's a it's a it's a particular type of writing it's not necessarily um, it's not necessarily autobiographical, and it's I, I I try and take myself as a person out of it as much as possible. So it's really about descriptions um, of place, and um, and so it has images, but the images are of a dysfunctional place. You know, uh, and the images were always taken as process photos. So um, it was about microphone setups, or it was about oh, I was recording this thing you know, a 44-gallon rusty drum kind of thing. So my photographs aren't of beautiful Antarctic landscapes. They're of um, refuse being burnt and, um, and discarded fuel drums and, um, you know, electric trays and, you know, power stations and, and things like that. So, again, the things that I'm interested in because I've never seen that kind of representation of Antarctica through my research. Um, so I just want to reveal another side of it. There's a human side. There's a technological side. There's the built environment and its own kind of impost and effect on the pristine environment. The effluent goes straight out into the bay. You know what does what does that do to the to the environment? You know, refuse is burnt, and so you've got this plume of black smoke that hangs over devastation most of the time. You know, so it's not this very pristine kind of environment that a lot of people think about. But then, you know, um, if if you if you've seen Werner Herzog's uh, encounters at the end of end of the world, then he kind of does that similar. Yeah, he made that film at the time that I was pitching my idea to the AAD. So it just so, just so happened he was interested in similar ideas of people who go down there and what do they do down there and how do they deal with that isolation and cold. So it was, it was interesting. You <coughs> spoke earlier about your... Pardon me. You spoke earlier about your fascination, particularly with the, the photographs of Frank Hurley, that sort of phantasmagoria. Yeah. Um, did your six weeks on station and week and a half either way on the ship did that scratch an itch about antarctica or has it as with so many people just fueled 
fueled the, the fascination. It's kind of it's an odd experience. I, I wouldn't say I enjoyed my time in Antarctica. It's 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 life changing and it's an amazing experience. But it's it's interesting when you think about pleasure and enjoyment and that kind of thing. I endured Antarctica and I, I endured even more Macquarie Island, which was far harder than, than anything I encountered in Antarctica. You know, Macquarie Island is hell on earth, you know, in terms of uh, its locale and um, just accessibility. We lost a ship there, you know, it's just so wild. Um, and so as someone who had to kind of, you know, um, visit and endure, the, essentially I endured Antar- um, Macquarie Island for 12 days, um, uh, shipped ashore every day. Uh, it was it was hair raising, and I thought I was going to die every day <laughs> that I was there. Um, so it's, it's really it's very hard to articulate that that experience. It profoundly changed me. Um, but it kind of it, the weird thing is that um, I thought I had I pretty much had experienced something uh, to a point that yeah I don't need to overwinter. I don't need to do all, uh, I don't need to go back and all that kind of stuff. Um, However, after about five years, I started to become very aware that there are there are things that I didn't capture with the first trip that that I kind of started to think about. And I think they're in their response to conditions. Um, yeah, I, I didn't record a lot of catabatic wind, and that's one of the iconic kind of elements or um, or um, yeah, I guess weather conditions, if you will. Um, of the continent and um, I started thinking well you know I went there and recorded a whole range of things but I never really really got catabatic wind and audio technology had advanced somewhat between 2019 and what what it's capable of now you know in terms of sensitivity in terms of um, durability and so forth so I was, I was also thinking about well if I went again I could document record this kind of phenomena in, in absolutely new and innovative ways um, that had never been done before. So I kind of started to think about Antarctica again as a site of research. Um, and I'd already been there, so I kind of had, I knew about the protocols, the systems, the logistics, the survival training, all the things required to kind of go down, down on the ice. So I kind of already knew what was at stake and what was achievable and what may not necessarily be achievable through the process too. So... Into th- and last year I applied to go again, but to Casey Station um, because Casey's at the foot of Lord Dome um, and has a fairly volatile weather system in, in the sense that a lot of wind blows through in the way it never did at Davis. Um, and they get blizzards in the way that Davis didn't uh, when I was there too. So, I mean, the conditions are very different. It's like visiting Africa and South America, you know, they're two completely different places. And Casey and Davis are very, very different. You know, Casey is an ice station; you're on ice, and uh, and that in itself requires different um, different modes of navigation and movement and 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 documentation as well. So I ended up going again, more out of I think intellectual curiosity around um, about around documentation, recording, um, and. Also, I think I wanted to be more true to the to the um, to the conditions uh, in Antarctica, in the sense that the the work I did at Davis and Macquarie Island and on the icebreaker are compositions comprised of various recordings of different activities, and um, and so um, so it's it's highly conceived and contoured and and, and and composed in that sense. 
Whereas with um, Casey, I just wanted to let the environment speak for itself and not have any engagement with that, no no kind of um, interference in post-production, if you will. And so I set up, I developed and set up a, a, a special kind of microphone array that recorded the conditions uh, in multi-channel uh, uh, across air, surface, and and within water as well simultaneously. And so you're getting the the environment and um, and uh, the the impact of catabatic wind uh, as as faithfully as possible without me then going back and and changing everything uh, in in in, hard, in in Pro Tools or in in the hard disk domain. Um, so I ended up spending three weeks at Casey recording wind, essentially, which um, I, it was pretty pretty hard to, to get people too excited about that. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, thankfully the AAD were, were pretty interested and excited by by the idea uh, around the innovation of it and, and so forth. And um, and so at the moment I'm working on it on a various outcomes. But one is um, an ensemble work with speak percussion, where we kind of marry or or mix the the recordings um, uh, produced by the field work with instrumental articulation and, and performance. Um, and they're working with industrial design here at RMIT on developing a, a range of ice instruments. So the percussionists will play ice um, as a way of kind of responding to my field recordings of, of, of Casey Station. And so that's designed for public performance and uh, be multi-channel sound and percussionists around the 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 the, the, the performance space and uh, the audience is kind of mixed in amongst all of that um and which should be ready in 2018 start of 2018 so that's the that's one of the projects we're working on and again different to what i did previously because i wanted to create a body of work that was um that would reach a different audience or a bigger audience in some way um I didn't just want to repeat myself and okay, oh, I can record a whole bunch of things and then broadcast again on radio and, and do the same thing. I wanted to try something else. So live performance, working with performers, special instruments, setting up particular conditions for encounter maximizes the experience of, um, of the fieldwork, I think, and creates an embodied encounter with the Antarctic conditions um, in a way that film, you know, video... Um, doesn't you know we're always up outside of that and um and a lot of what we see you know, in a kind of a david attenborough documentary while some of it is field recording most of it is foley most of it is constructing in, in post-production so uh often the sounds that you're seeing aren't from the location and so i kind of want to create as authentic an experience of those antarctic conditions as, as possible fantastic i look forward to it thank you so much for your time ah, no worries this episode, I thank Jackie, Sarah, Kate, Roslyn and Alex, members of Storytelling Australia, Victoria, for sharing their love of stories with me and for giving me new perspectives on my own efforts in sharing them. Take care and appreciate your coffee. Oh, and congratulations Eli and Anna, who likely won't hear this, but who are awesome enough to warrant my shouting out to them regardless in the digital void. <laughs>